Perry, I like the suit coat. Thank you. I've had a year just like a slob. I'm going to try to like spruce it up generally. Ooh, I love that. Have you heard the phrase hard pants? No. Hard pants? Like pants that aren't sweats? Yes, basically, or like leggings, I guess, for women or what have you. So my wife was saying that we should do more hard pants days recently. Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Some of the most prominent personalities and ideas within the Republican Party were on display at the Conservative Political Action Conference over the weekend. The conference is generally thought of as a proving ground for ambitious and up-and-coming Republican politicians. But this year, former President Trump was in many ways the star of the show. He gave the closing speech where he announced he wouldn't be starting a third party, and he spent much of the speech criticizing President Biden's agenda, falsely claiming he won the election, and teasing that he might run in 2024. So today, we're going to talk about what, if anything, we learned from the GOP at CPAC. Also, last week, Democrats' agenda hit its first big procedural snag. The Senate parliamentarian ruled that the federal minimum wage could not be raised through reconciliation. That's the process the Democrats are using to pass their COVID relief package with only a majority of the vote in the Senate. So we're going to discuss the debate within the party over what to do about this roadblock and the others that are likely to hold up much of the Democratic agenda. And here with me to do that are senior politics writer Perry Bacon Jr. Hey, Perry. Hi, Galen. Also here with us is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Galen. And managing editor Micah Cohen. Hey, Micah. Hey, Galen. Hey, everybody. Good to have you. It's been a minute. It has. It's great to be back on the podcast. So I want to begin with CPAC, but let's start with one of our favorite questions, which is, of course, good use of polling or bad use of polling. CPAC often conducts a straw poll to see who the attendees prefer as the GOP's next presidential nominee. This year, Trump won with 55% of the vote. However, The Atlantic published a piece a while back that I dug up. It's from 2015, but they basically counted the number of times that the CPAC straw poll winner went on to win the GOP nomination going back decades. Out of 20 CPAC straw polls, only four winners ultimately got the nomination. And then in 2016, of course, Cruz came in first, Rubio came in second, and Trump came in third. For years before that, Ron Paul and Rand Paul were winning these straw polls. So I want to use this as a way of getting at how representative CPAC is of the Republican Party. What do you all think? Is this CPAC straw poll a good or bad use of polling, at least in the sense that it gives us an idea of what the Republican Party wants or not? It's a bad use of polling only because it's not a representative group. Anybody can choose to go to CPAC as long as you pay the fee. Uh, you know, it used to be in Washington, so I would go every year for a while, and often you'd get a lot of sort of like libertarianish Ron Paul or Rand Paul-ish young people who are between ages 18 and 24 who could honestly afford to take up. It's a commission in the middle of the week, so they have days and weekends too, but often the straw poll was during the week. So who can take off several days, travel to a conference? It's not a representative sample of the Republican Party, and I would argue not even a sample of the Republican activist base as such. So in this case, the numbers in the CPAC poll line up with the general polling I've seen about Trump being 50, 60 percent of the Republican voters won over Trump. So I don't think it's a bad poll in this sense, but I don't think it's really useful as an exercise of where the Republican Party is, even the activist part. Yeah, what's interesting is 
maybe it's more representative this year than in past years. I don't know why that would be, but certainly as Perry just referenced in terms of the poll results we saw, and I think the general tenor and focus of the conference, it lined up with like the broader evidence we have about what the Republican Party cares about and and is focused on. So maybe it's more representative now as opposed to being dominated by that Rand Paul, Ron Paul, libertarian wing in in years past. Yeah, I was going to say good use of polling too, because I do think CPAC has gone under a transformation from the period where Reagan kind of helped kick it off to the Ron Paul era, to being more on the nose in terms of where part of the activist base is. I think Perry makes a good point that we shouldn't lull ourselves into thinking that this is the only portion of the GOP base that is activist and involved in trying to change politics here. But I do think it's indicative of understanding how much, at least this section of the Republican Party, really wants Trump's policies and approach to politics to carry on for the next four years and to really define the party. So what part of the party is this then? And why might have CPAC become more representative of the broader GOP if you agree with that thesis? I mean, maybe it's just a coincidence. Just to take a couple of examples, the CPAC poll found that about two in three people wanted Trump to run again in 2024. About two in three people named election integrity as a top issue. That matches up pretty well with polls we have of all Republican voters, which have found about 70 percent of Republicans don't think the 2020 election was free and fair, which it was. So put another way, about one in three Republicans is ready to move on from Trump specifically, not Trumpism, but Trump specifically, according to CPAC and according to polls more generally. Why it would be more representative this year? It could just be a coincidence. Actually, I thought USA Today put out a good, like, here's the history of CPAC since the 70s. And one point they made in that piece was that it's often useful as a harbinger of what's to come. Like, lest we forget, George W. Bush went on CPAC at one point. That kind of hinted at the era of conservative, empathetic politics and the importance that Christian conservatives would have in the party as an intellectual base within it. And then you also saw that with the Tea Party in 2010. I mean, Trump's first speech at CPAC was 2011. And yes, he skipped it in 2016 to hit the campaign trail. But I do think increasingly you've seen a absence or a transition away from some of the conservative core policies that they would debate and a move now into more of like the Trumpian Tea Party birther conspiracy dynamic. That's a really good point. So here's a theory for why CPAC is, is more representative. Maybe it's just a indirect product of the fact that the Republican Party is now much more homogenous demographically, ideologically, than it used to be. So maybe in years past, you would have at least a semblance of different policy wings within the party, and you'd have, you know, the national security Republicans, and you'd have the social conservative Republicans, where now you have basically just a focus on white identity issues and cultural grievances, there's less variation within the party for CPAC to pick up on. And so it inherently has to be more representative. I think what Mike is saying, just put differently, might be that the establishment wing of the party 
was before unrepresented CPAC. And now whatever the Trump wing is, is the establishment. So in a certain way, it used to be kind of like the Romney version of, of Republicanism was not going to win at CPAC, but was going to win in the electorate. And now I think increasingly the Romney McConnell view is not popular among the electorate or at CPAC. Or the libertarian wing, right? Or the like libertarian the, wing for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. So should we say this is a good use of polling or bad use of polling? It seems like we're saying historically it's been a bad use of polling, but this year it's a good use of polling. Is that true? <laughs> How do we want to label this CPAC straw poll? So I'm sticking with bad only because I only think the poll is useful because it lines up with the other polls I actually trust. Yeah, yeah that's the right answer. That is. Because I mean, I think too, you can kind of read this poll any way you want because we're so far out, right? And we know that it's not predictive of what 2024 will hold. Also, DeSantis was really high. Wasn't he like 22%? Because the event happened in Florida, I'm a little bit nervous that DeSantis is that far ahead of the sort of non-Trump Republican. That may be the case. I don't know. The event happening in Washington, I thought, was a little more helpful because Washington tends to get, if you're a person who goes to conferences, D.C. is kind of the place you go. Having it in Florida makes you think the governor of Florida probably did do better than maybe if it was in Illinois. I don't know. That's definitely true. And it's a reason, I think, to like be skeptical of the DeSantis result in that poll. But it also could be another reason CPAC in general is sort of more interesting and more representative is because it's not in D.C. And Florida is a pretty good place to capture the mood of the Republican Party, I think. Yeah. One thing I'd read, too, that I thought was interesting was this idea that because of the role that the coronavirus is playing in all of our lives, governors might have an easier time on the national stage than senators because they're the ones at home setting the policies about, yes, we're shutting down. Yes, you have to wear a mask or not wear a mask. You know, that was a talking point for both DeSantis and Christy Noem of South Dakota. All right. So I wanted to use that in a way to set up how much we can rely on CPAC to give us a sense of where the Republican Party is. So important to remember, historically, not super representative of the party. Maybe there are reasons to believe that is more representative today, but it could also still be the case that it's not representative. And this is a conglomeration of ideas that are maybe popular today, but could fade over the next two years. Who knows? I just want to set up those caveats before we talk about CPAC in terms of what we can learn about the party more broadly. So given that, what did we learn about the Republican Party from CPAC in terms of what its priorities are, its agenda going forward? Oftentimes after a party loses a big election, it has a moment of reckoning where it tries to figure out how it needs to change or evolve in order to win elections going forward. What message did we get from the party about where it thinks its future lies and the arguments that it's gonna make to the American public? I guess two points would be, it looks like for now, at least, the big lie or what have you, this, uh, the idea that Trump was cheated out of the election is going to be something that was something most of the speakers either said was true or didn't refute. There was a lot of speakers saying, we lost, we need to rethink Republicanism as it stands now. It wasn't that kind of conference. So that the idea that the election was taken away from Trump was a big theme. And also this idea of... Almost all the speakers mentioned someone canceled, cancel culture, which I think plays into these questions around race, culture, multiculturalism, so on. So I think you you heard that's going to be a focus of the party going forward as, as well. The identity issues are going to remain a big focus. Yeah, Trump even said explicitly, it was a line, something like, our very identity as Americans is at stake. I do think that's right. I think some combination of white identity politics cancel cultural grievances 
is the party's North Star at the moment. Well, the name of the convention was CPAC America Uncancelled. So that's obviously pretty clear messaging right there. Yeah, it wasn't very subtle. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting because like right now polls show, what is it, 50% of Americans aren't familiar with that term. And here the GOP is very intently going into that as a key point of messaging. I mean, I assume that will change just given how much it is increasingly being covered. But it does seem like a curious choice to really make that the flag point in which you want to campaign on. I do wonder how potent of a political issue it will be. You know, one other really dominant theme you saw in Trump's speech, for example, was immigration. Like the first 10 minutes or so, 15 minutes or so, were focused on immigration, much like his sort of original campaign speech. But immigration as an issue didn't have the potency in 2018 or 2020 that it might have in 2016. You know, if you remember, like in 2018, Trump tried to make that like migrant caravan a big issue down the stretch. That didn't really work. Although Republicans kept the Senate. So I don't know, maybe there's a slight caveat there. And then in 2020, obviously, he sometimes hit on immigration, but it didn't seem to have the rallying effect it did in 2016. I do wonder if Republicans think that like this idea of liberals are trying to cancel you is like a better version of that, that kind of white grievance. I don't, but it's like white grievance targeted for college graduates, you know? And like, maybe that's CPAC's core demographic to some extent. Yeah, it kind of is. Yeah, right? And so it's like, okay, we lost the suburbs in 2018 and in 2020. Is this something we can resonate with in terms of that section of the base that increasingly is moving Democratic while not moving away from some of the explicit dog whistles and other avenues? I did want to ask, I didn't watch all of the speeches, but I watched all of Trump's speech. And as you mentioned, immigration was a big part of it. He also talked about school closures. He talked about China and then some of Biden's other executive actions on, for example, energy, the Keystone Pipeline, et cetera. And I'm curious, did Trump in that opening part of his speech where he did talk about Biden's agenda, did he give us a blueprint for where Republicans think Biden's vulnerabilities are? Or are those things that are just near and dear to Trump? Or are they actually getting at something that is important in American politics in that Biden may be vulnerable in those areas? Energy, policy on China, school closures, immigration. I don't think I'd look for much signal there. I mean, Trump went through a lot of issues. He explicitly like laid out how he defined Trumpism and he attacked Biden, you know, on everything. He was like, this is the worst month for an administration ever. And it was just like so all over the place. You know, I'm sure Biden is vulnerable on some of those issues, but that's only because Trump like went through every issue. Well, people certainly picked up on the fact that he really didn't go after the American Rescue Plan. Like he said, it was expensive and would bail out Democratic cities. But this $2 trillion plan that normally at CPAC would have gotten probably a lot of pushback was barely talked about while immigration, he talked a lot about school closures, he talked a lot about China, he talked a lot about. Well, I think one thing you're seeing there is like, we know that COVID relief is broadly popular. I think 
Republicans are largely staying silent on that to see how it plays out. Like there's no advantage for them to really take a big active stance on it. It could prove popular. It could prove really complex and unpopular as time goes on. I do think though, to push back a little on what Micah was saying, like one thing Morning Consult is tracking over the next four years is how Biden polls on a variety of different issues. And of the 14 issues they're looking at, which ranges anywhere from climate change to Medicare to how he's handling the pandemic, the four topics where he was below 50%, again, we're not saying like zero or bottom, but, you know, in the 40s and 30s, were energy, immigration, foreign policy, and guns. So I don't think it was like completely out of the blue that Trump targeted those issues, right? I think, for instance, China, granted, that was forecasted as a big issue in 2020 and really wasn't. But depending on how the pandemic plays out here, in addition to economic recovery in the U.S., I could see that becoming more and more of a GOP talking point. One thing you could tell, there wasn't a ton of focus on like Biden the way there was and about Obama in like previous versions of this. And I think Biden himself is not the easiest target is my impression. Probably race, age, ideology. He's seen as nice, gender. You can pick a lot of different ways about that. But I think the overall tenor of the left is trying to move America on too many dimensions too quickly. It's the left is too woke. The left is trying to stop anybody who doesn't agree with their ideology from moving forward. I think is a pretty good argument. I think it unifies the Republican Party pretty well. It's, it divides the Democrats on some elements. And I think the explicit banning Muslims and talking about Mexicans negatively is not as helpful versus cancel culture sort of touches that without actually going there on the issues. I think they actually have arrived at a decent organizing principle for the party. Yeah, I want to actually quote Ron DeSantis from his CPAC speech. He said, quote, we can sit around and have academic debates about conservative policy. We can do that. But the question is, when the Klieg lights get hot, when the left comes after you, will you stay strong or will you fold? And essentially, he says there, maybe we shouldn't have some of these detailed policy arguments. Like, the thing that unites us is what you just said, like a fear of the left, in a sense. And that's kind of what Sarah Huckabee launched her campaign on in Arkansas. Yeah, that seals to me, like DeSantis, I think, is a pretty good politician. He does some of the things I worry about in terms of democratic norms that Trump did. But I think he's on the pulse. I think that that leads to policies anyway. Like, it means you oppose a lot of states, for example, trying to ban the 1619 budget from being taught. Or they're trying to pass laws that says, if you defund the police, we catch your funding. I think Texas and Florida are doing this. There's a lot of things, if your politics is organized around the left is being too aggressive, Aggressive, that actually leads to some policies without actually having to think too much. You know, we're opposed to defunding the police is a pretty easy argument, actually. Yeah, I guess where I'm struggling a little bit is you could imagine a really politically smart party strategy among GOP candidates and operatives that got rid of a lot of the racist stuff and sexist stuff. And in, as Perry said, instead kind of dressed it all up in a victimhood, in essence, like that the left, as Perry said, is going after everybody and we need to stand together because et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, like if the Trump era represented going from subtext to text on a lot of these issues, basically an effort to move all that stuff back into subtext. The problem with that is there's still a lot of text. Like Trump's speech was full of 
attacks on immigrants and, and stuff like that. So maybe it is a smart strategy. I guess I'm pretty skeptical that it's going to be widely adopted. Yeah, because the part of fighting cancel culture, right, or pushing back on it is you say cancelable things, right, or things that aren't politically correct as part of that fight. I hadn't thought, though, to the extent like what Perry was saying about how that in and of itself, though, still lends policies. That makes sense. You know, they're pushing back increasingly on tech censorship. And like, that's something that Holly's made a big part of the Senate and wanting to push bills on that. I don't think I've appreciated enough about how it's not just rhetoric. It can also push through policies, even though you wouldn't look at CPAC this past week and say, oh, wow, a ton of policies were discussed. But that's a good point that we shouldn't kid ourselves that this doesn't still result in some type of policy. I mean, the question I guess we'll get to is if you're running in a primary, Trump has this fame and so on. But if Rick Scott and DeSantis run as the subtext candidates and Marjorie Taylor Greene ran as the text candidate, is it better to be the subtext or the text person? And I'm not sure the 2016 primary suggested obviously the answer is be the person who says it directly. But I'm not sure that's always the case. There probably is a way to do... I can imagine like a DeSantis kind of person is going to hint, if I do subtext, I can win. And if we do text, we might lose. And I think that's not an unreasonable. And and basically my subtext is executing it. Like DeSantis is actually accomplishing things in a way that Marjorie Taylor Greene isn't because subtext might actually get more votes. I think that's not, I don't know what's going to play out, but I think the subtext is where they're headed. I think Micah framed it really well. Yeah. And of course, we'll watch what happens in 2022. I didn't want to frame this conversation entirely around 2024. And I hope that's not the sense that people are getting and listening to it. But like, these are arguments that are happening within the party right now that are going to play out over the next two years. I do, though, want to ask a question about how we in the media are covering Trump, because usually former presidents fade from the spotlight. In this case, Former President Trump can run for another term if he wants to, and he is certainly making the decision not to fade from the spotlight. He is headlining CPAC, for example. So how should we be treating him? Is everything he says and does newsworthy? Should we think of him as the likeliest 2024 nominee and cover him as such? So if in 2017... Barack Obama had written a letter detailing how much he thinks Nancy Pelosi sucks. That would have been news. So the McConnell-Trump thing, I think that letter got a lot of coverage and I think should have. If Barack Obama had went to a net roots nation or whatever and given a big speech saying Michelle is going to run or what I guess he, he couldn't run himself, that would have been news too. So I think Trump, every utterance of his is not important, but I think there are some things that are important. Like when he met with Marjorie Taylor Greene, when they were fighting about what she should have with her, that was significant. When he met with McCarthy, I mean, I think these initial moves are interesting. If, if he does the same moves like six months from now, a letter from Trump saying McConnell sucks two weeks from now is less newsworthy because it already happened. But I still think these things matter in the broadest sense. What I am leery about is you can see news outlets are assigning reporters to cover Trump. And some of the reporters are doing lots of sources close to Trump said X. We don't really need anonymous sources on Trump. He's not president anymore. We don't really need that kind of like breathless, endless, dumb coverage that was dumb at the time when he was president at times as well. And I thought a lot of the hype of the run up to his speech, we don't need to pre 
give you an ex-president's speech. We can just let him give a speech and cover, but the previewing seemed weird. So I think there are some incentives because of traffic, because of how interesting Trump is to sort of overcover him and maybe undercover what people with actual governing power who are mayors or governors or state legislators do. So I think the question is, we should cover like Trumpism, how Trump style values are affecting the Republican Party constantly. We should cover Donald Trump as a human, maybe a little less is my sense of it. I'd offer two things. One is to like just not hand Trump the mic and get out of the way. I think media outlets have mostly learned that lesson since 2016. So I think that's less of a problem now. I was like checking around yesterday during the CPAC speech and I think that it was only Fox who was running the speech live. So that's a big one. And then the other one, and this is the part where I'm just slightly restating what Perry said, editors, reporters, I think should always first ask themselves, why are we covering this Trump event or Trump speech or Trump action, whatever it is? Are we covering it as a way into the dynamics in the broader Republican Party? Okay, fine. Are we covering it because... Trump himself will have sway over some specific, let's say a bill is in front of Congress and Trump is lobbying Republicans in Congress to vote in a certain way. Okay, fine. But if you don't have a like a ready answer for that question, why are we covering this? I think maybe stay away. And I think as Perry said, like assigning a reporter to cover Trump as a B is a way of structurally removing that question as a barrier to doing journalism about Trump. Because once you assign a beat to someone, they're just doing it, right? You're sort of saying structurally, we're gonna cover this in an ongoing way. Yeah, I mean, this is a question I personally struggle with, you know, being in a newsroom, being an editor, where I feel like Trump has been largely an assignment editor in the last four years, right? Like what he does is news. I do think though, increasingly, like as the former president, there will be shifts in terms of that. As Perry said, you know, in the last week, we saw a lot of hyped up coverage leading up to CPAC that was all anonymously sourced, that wasn't really adding to our understanding of the power he still wields or what Trumpism is in the party. So I think definitely like two questions 538 and myself will be asking moving forward is like, what are we helping readers gain from this coverage? And then what are we doing in our job to add to the discussion around Trumpism and the influence that has in the party and moving beyond Trump the man, as Perry said? All right. Well, that was helpful for understanding how we'll be covering Trump here at 538 and and the difficult questions that he poses still for journalism, even once he's out of office. I want to move on and talk about how the Democratic Party plans to address roadblocks to its agenda. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.
Last week, the Senate parliamentarian, who's a nonpartisan official charged basically with interpreting the rules of the Senate, ruled that the federal minimum wage could not be raised through the reconciliation process. In other words, if Democrats want to raise the minimum wage, they either need to get 60 senators on board or come up with a policy workaround that could get some kind of minimum wage raise incentive through reconciliation. Otherwise, they could take a more drastic approach like firing the parliamentarian or changing the rules of the filibuster. So this is the first time that they're facing this dilemma, but it's very unlikely to be the last. We want to talk about some of the debate within the party over what to do about it. And we can broaden this out to some of the other policy areas, but remaining on minimum wage for a moment, what is the party thinking now about how it's going? This is a key part of its agenda, what it campaigned on in 2020. What do Democrats want to do now about trying to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour nationally? I think they're going to put it aside to get COVID relief passed, right? Yeah. I mean, there was talk that Sanders and Biden were going to try to push through a corporate tax penalty as a way to do it. They're abandoning that. From what I can tell, it seems as if they'll table it for now and revisit it at some other point. What does that mean, though? Does that mean that the minimum wage is not going to be raised over the next two years? I think it's not going to pass. Bernie Sanders is telling people, like, this is the only way to get it passed in the next two years, and the parliamentarian gutted it. So I think this gets to the question about either they get rid of the filibuster or the minimum wage is not increased. This is just binary. That's it. There's no, like, there's 10 Republicans in the Senate who would be open to raising it to, like, Somewhere close to 15, et cetera. The question of whether you can raise it to $11 or $11.50, I don't see it. But I think there might be some amount of, like, if there's some Republicans who are moving on this issue a little bit, I think Romney and, let's say, either Holly or Cotton came out for, I think, 10 or $11. So maybe there's something in the middle. $15 is definitely filibuster or bust. But I think maybe there's some in the middle there between $7.50 and $15. But the flip of that, though, is I've seen that Warren was like, no, it's 15. Right. I don't do 11. And I mean, again, I don't think we're at this point that like 11 serious. So that that could very well change. But I think that's worth noting, too, that like even if they got to that, I don't know if it would it be a measure. It sounded like the alternative that some progressives, including Ilhan Omar, suggested was firing the Senate parliamentarian. And that would potentially allow Democrats to get through more policies using reconciliation as opposed to doing away with the filibuster entirely. Does it seem like that is more likely than changing the rules of the filibuster or equally unlikely? I think that's a zero. In compare, I think changing the filibuster might actually is a real discussion. I don't think the Joe Biden party is interested in like, the Senate is great. I love the Senate. They're not going to, I don't think they're going to do that. That's going to feel to them norm breaking in a way that not just Biden, Chris Coons, Feinstein, that's not going to be popular. They're not going to do that. And I think that points to an important characteristic we're seeing about Democrats' current approach to this, and this is something Perry wrote about for the site, but like the fundamental disagreement in the party right now is basically over like, how much should we be behaving as business as usual? How much can we pursue our policy agenda using the normal means that members of Congress and administrations have used over the past 20, 30, 40 years. I think there's part of the party that thinks there is a structural breakdown has happened in the small d democratic systems of our country 
which makes passing policies that the majority of the public, like majority-backed policies, somewhere between hard and impossible. And that camp is willing, I think, to, like people often refer to it as like playing constitutional hardball or do stuff like fire the Senate parliamentarian because they think in the current system is so broken that you can't do the business as usual stuff to get your policies passed. You have to be willing to reform the system or or do huge kind of unprecedented end runs around the system. So far, at least, I think we've seen that the majority of Democrats and the Biden administration are like not willing to go there yet. That doesn't mean they might not go there eventually or they might not take steps in that direction. But that's the basic fault line right now is like how much of a emergency is the country in, in terms of small d democracy? And from the Democrats point of view, also big D democratic interests, because right now the Democratic Party is more aligned with the majority of the country. And right now, at least most Democrats in power, I think are not willing to like pull the fire alarm, basically. So that's where minimum wage stands. But it sounds like the dynamic that you're describing, Micah, is going to apply to a lot more of the Democratic agenda than just the minimum wage. So I'm curious, Perry, what does it seem like can be accomplished by Democrats leaving in place all of the rules and procedures that are currently there? And how much of the agenda is dependent on whether or not Democrats are willing to change the rules and procedures of the Senate? So you can put a lot in these reconciliation bills. So it looks like, although the minimum wage, you can't. The current bill now is Obamacare changes. It has money for states. It has COVID relief. It's not just a COVID relief. There's a ton of things. I think somebody described there's like a year's worth of policy in that bill. So I think they're going to sort of push these bills as much as possible and add in stuff. I think they're talking about adding in legalization for undocumented immigrants in the next reconciliation bill. Again, I think they're going to run into the barrier of Reconciliation is not designed for non-economic budget things. So basically, you have a lot of budget things you can pass. You can appoint justices to the Supreme Court and lower courts. Anything that involves, like, is really focused on spending money. So infrastructure is a big thing. That's, in fact, the next reconciliation bill they're talking about is infrastructure. So healthcare, you could probably do a public option in a reconciliation. But there's a, there's a lot of economic policy you can do. So they could do two years' worth of policy that would actually be pretty groundbreaking through reconciliation only. You're not going to do anything around voting rights. You're not going to do much around immigration. You're not going to do much around racial issues. You're not going to do much around police reform. So there's still a big category of things that are not done, but there's things you can do. So maybe not surprisingly, as long as the current structure and system is in place, you cannot pass things to reform or remake the current structure or system. Like, as Perry was saying, I think things that a lot of Democratic activists see as like, not only really important, but like, frankly, fatal if not done for the party, expanding the right to vote, protecting the right to vote for voters of color in particular, they can't do those things through reconciliation. So I think Perry's right that like there is a lot they can do, but I do think at some point someone's going to look around in the party and be like, it is a problem that we haven't done these other things. And then there will be a big fight on it. I think that fight has to come, right? Like, 
there's going to be a big fight on the filibuster at some point. Yeah, the House is going to pass this H.R. 1, this sort of voting reforms, end of gerrymandering bill. They're also going to pass at some point what's called the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which is like a, basically a restoration of the things in this Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court kind of knocked out a few years ago. So you're going to have these two voting rights bills that are going to be pushed. They're going to be passed through the House and they're probably going to get to votes on the Senate. So the key thing here is like you're going to have voting rights bills that are not just supported by the AOCs and the Ayanna Presleys, but also like Barack Obama gave this quote about the filibuster, why we have to get rid of it for voting rights. Clyburn's going to, is on board for that. So there's a core of Democrats that are not sort of the most left who want to get rid of the filibuster, not to add judges to the Supreme Court, but to do sort of more increment of past voting rights stuff, specifically minimum wage, stuff that's going to be pretty popular. And so that's where the fight is really going to be, is between that group and the cinemas and the mansions and the Feinsteins who say, we just don't want to get rid of the filibuster. That's what's coming probably later this year is what I suspect. Right. And, and Perry wrote about this, but like you could see that debate, particularly over voting rights, be what kind of gets Democrats to say, you know what, maybe we do get rid of the filibuster. Because one thing, you know, I hadn't fully realized was the extent to which the filibuster has been used to prevent civil rights legislation from happening, right? Like that was a main mechanism in the 1950s and 60s to delay progress. So there is that history there. And that is something I think Democrats who really want to push through and fight for voting rights, particularly given the extent to which various Republican state governments now are making it harder to vote. I think you could see a real fault line where it's no longer just this way in which the government works, but the stakes are so much higher that someone like Manchin maybe says, okay, I back getting rid of the filibuster. I realize we are nowhere near there yet in terms of the conversation, but as Perry has written for the site, like I think we are headed it's in that direction. It's just much easier for the Manchins and the cinemas of the world to stand by the filibuster when it's like, should we have a $15 minimum wage or $11, $12 minimum wage? Not that that's not important. That's really important. But just in terms of the politics of the Democratic Party, it'll be much harder for them to do that when it's like, as Sarah said, you have all these Republican parties at the state level making it harder for black people to vote. And then Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema is going to stand in the way of a bill that is meant to expand the vote. Like that's I'm not saying that they'll flip because of it, but it'll at least be harder not to flip. So how does that pressure campaign work? And where does the Biden administration come into play? Because you've certainly seen instances in the Republican Party, going back to 2017, for example, where you have like Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski being like, after saying that we're going to repeal and replace the ACA forever, we're going to stand in the way and not allow it to happen. And the full force of the Republican Party being like, no, we got to do this. And I'm just saying no. I think that the Democratic Party is probably more cohesive in many ways than the Republican Party was when you had McConnell pulling it in one direction and Trump pulling it in another. Maybe that's true. I don't know. You can disagree with me if you want to. But how does the Democratic Party try to pressure Manchin, Cinema, Feinstein into changing the rules of the filibuster on this? How does it happen? 
So in 2013, there were a lot of senators who had said, I'm not going to vote for filibuster changes. And then, then eventually sort of Obama pushed them to change the filibuster on lower court nominees, basically get rid of the filibuster on the lower courts. Manchin, of course, voted against that change, to be fair. And so Manchin and Cinema are people who prize their independence. They think part of their brand is... I don't go along with the other, with the other, with the other um, Democrats. In the same way that Murkowski and Collins, I think it's actually fairly similar, is that they don't really go along with the party. Manchin is from a state that's very red. Only Joe Manchin, I would argue, probably can get elected there as a Democrat. So he's got particular power there. Also, there's the Mark Kelly's. Mark Kelly's in a swing state. He's not going to probably want to be out too far beyond where Cinema is. He's up in 2022. Mark Warner, Dianne Feinstein, Tim Kaine, Chris Coons. There's a lot of people who sort of like a more bipartisan Senate who are also not going to be comfortable there. I think the important part for Biden is Biden has been part of this. I think the Senate is a great place. I want bipartisanship to work. So I think there's two pressure points. One, I think in Arizona, you're going to have a lot of constituents really push cinema and call her and so on. I don't think that's going to make much of a difference. And for Manchin, that'll make none of a difference. But I do think if the case is made, look, we're the Democratic Party, Joe Biden's leader of the party. We want to win in 2022. And Joe Biden sort of leans on them as sort of like, we need this to win in 2022. And because our, we're the party of black people, you need to, to, to jump on board on this voting issue because of the racial dynamics of our party. That might be a different case. But I don't expect Joe Biden is going to fly to Western and give a speech saying, change these filibuster rules now. I think it's going to be a much more subtle campaign. And we may not know if it happens or not. My guess is, in fact, this may already be over. It could be the case that Biden has already called Joe Manchin and Cinema, and they've told him to, you know, F off. And then this is sort of over in a certain way. And all this is, I don't think Biden is going to do this in public. So I think that might be one place where we don't actually know where this goes. It does really seem, though, like a case where the position that Biden sticks out, even if only privately, matters a lot. I don't think it'll be determinative, but it does seem like it would matter a lot. The other thing I would say is like Manchin, Cinema, both of them have an incentive to carve out this kind of independent identity. And therefore, like, even if eventually they will be okay weakening the filibuster or carving, making further carve outs of the filibuster, you would still expect them to start from a position where they are now of saying, no, I'm against getting rid of the filibuster. They wouldn't start from a place of like, oh yeah, whatever, let's get rid of the filibuster. They'll want to appear kind of reluctant and cautious. And the reason that Democrats aren't getting rid of the filibuster for everything, but only in X, Y, and Z cases. So maybe it is already done, but maybe it's like they've had a conversation. They're like, oh yeah, we'll back this more limited filibuster gutting rather than the total makeover or something. Essentially saying that this is a lot of performance here and not really strongly held beliefs or whatever. I actually wanted to ask this before we do wrap up, which is, is this an ideological position for Manchin Cinema and others who are wary of changing the rules? Or is this an electoral consideration? So are people worried that voters do actually want these guardrails in place and will penalize them for getting rid of them? Or is it just this is how I think the Senate should work. I like institutions and history, and I want to keep this in place because of that. 
So my impression is this is not ideological. Like Dianne Feinstein is, she's not as left as people in California would like, but she's pretty liberal on these issues. Mark Warner is not, you know, he's, he is more moderate. But I think there are people who are left on issues who still feel this way about this. I mean, I'm assuming if you poll in West Virginia, increasing the minimum wage is actually really popular. Well, I mean, minimum wage increases are very popular just broadly. I would assume Manchin is helped by a minimum wage increase in voting for it if he can. I assume he would vote for something like this if it came up with a filibuster. Um, his brand matters. This is hard to figure out, I think, because I think this brand that Manchin and Cinema have probably is helpful. Like the Neera Tandon thing, like a much less important example. So like Neera Tandon has been nominated to run OMB and Manchin is the only Democrat who's been against that in public so far. To me, that seems like a free shot for Manchin to say, look, I'm an independent person. It's a high-profile story that also really doesn't matter because Biden will find another OMB director in two hours if it came to that. And so I think that's where I think the brand stuff does matter, and I, and I think that brand is electorally helpful to him. I also think largely polls have shown that Democrats really do want Congress to work together, more so than Republicans. Like that is something that Pew has consistently found. In the most recent survey, it was like 62% want Biden to work with Republicans, even if it means disappointing some of his voters. And that was that was the language of the poll. And so like we'll see how that continues here in the next four years, particularly as key parts of the Democratic agenda is not able to be put through reconciliation. But at this point, there's not really like a clear dividing line on the filibuster either. Like in the lead up to 2020, a Harvard Caps Harris poll found that 52% said it would be a good idea to get rid of it. 48% it would be a bad idea. Again, though, I don't know how much that has been something that has been talked about actively outside of leftist circles. Increasingly, though, if that becomes the one avenue in which to push through some of the Democrats' bigger agenda items, I think you'll see more polarization. Yeah, we don't believe, that right, that like people care about the filibuster itself, voters, or that it, w- it will be an animating issue. That can't be the case, right? Well, I would assume that on specific policies, no. But that as a signaling mechanism, yes, right? Like we have talked about before that if a party is seen or a leader or a newly elected president is seen as overly partisan, too liberal, too conservative, that can create some kind of backlash. But it's not going to be like people are just devastated by the filibuster rules changes, et cetera. It's more like a signal that the party is more liberal. No, totally. But I guess my point then is like, I completely agree with that. And it's why I think like some of the opposition to getting rid of the filibuster is about branding and some of it, maybe other senators is about more institutional history or something. But if it's just about signaling, then it's just much more ephemeral. And then if you make a good argument, if getting rid of the filibuster is attached to something, let's say, that has bipartisan support, like raising the minimum wage, then maybe you can switch what it's a signal of. To Sarah's point, keeping the filibuster a signal of racism, frankly. Can you make keeping the filibuster a signal of holding down wages for working Americans? Maybe then you could change the debate on it. But just the fact that it is a signaling thing makes it much more fungible Fungible, is that how you say that word? Um, And then if people really cared about the issue itself, right? 
what I'm sort of mystified by, and this is all, is like, I've read a lot of pieces about Mansion of Cinema, but I would rather read more of them and less about Donald J. Trump in the future, if that was possible, other reporters, please. You know, so I actually am sort of interested in, like, are Mansion and Cinema not particularly invested in their relationship to Biden, their investment in his presidency. It became very clear Collins and Murkowski did not have a particularly high view of Trump or a particularly strong investment in his political project. And they wanted to make sure not to vote to ruin their own careers, but I don't think they had much investment. I don't have a good sense of whether Manchin and Cinema see themselves as capital D Democrats in an important way or not really. And I think that's the question, because I guess it goes to this filibuster question overall, because a lot of things in Biden's agenda can't move without the filibuster moving. But I don't know how much they care about that. Manchin has been there for Democrats on the biggest votes. Is that accurate to say? I guess both of them voted for impeachment, right? So and that's is that yeah. the biggest vote? Yeah. So I guess in some ways. But- and also... On Kavanaugh, Manchin only voted for Kavanaugh after it became clear that he was already going to be the next Supreme Court justice. So you're saying, you guys are saying he's a team player in a lot of ways. Well. That's the message you get, at least. Sorry, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Sorry, I didn't mean to put it that way. At a certain point and on certain issues, it's complicated. Like, is raising the minimum wage popular in West Virginia? Yeah, I would guess it is, too. Is it popular in West Virginia if it's like painted, frankly, as like a program meant to benefit people of color and not white people, even though that has no connection to like reality, obviously? Well, then maybe it's not as popular in West Virginia. So it's like, it's just complicated. I think Manchin has shown in at least some circumstances, he views himself as a capital D Democrat and that means something. But I'm not sure I figured out like, what the defining characteristics of those circumstances is yet and therefore can predict what they will be in the future. So to answer your question before we wrap up here, a new poll out last week by One Fair Wage Coalition. So this is a poll that was conducted by an interest group. 63% of West Virginians support raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025. So take that with a grain of salt because it is a partisan or at least interest group poll. But So we will see what happens, and this is a dynamic that we will continue to cover. But that's going to be it for today. So thank you, Perry, Sarah, and Micah. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Thanks, everyone. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. It was also just his birthday. So if you see him anywhere, wish him a happy birthday. Claire Bidigary-Curtis is on audio editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. And just because I know you love it, Tony, happy birthday. <laughs>